Taylor. And we're the Barclays. And this is our podcast about politics, culture, religion, our opinions, and this week, a special guest opinion. So we're we're the Barclays plus guest. That's that's right. We need to rename this thing. We're the Barclays and Beth. And Beth, we're really excited to introduce you, our listeners, to the wonderful Beth Bailey coming to us from Michigan. Um, Beth and I have been friends for a decade plus now. We met at the Heritage Foundation doing an internship. In 2009? 10. 10. Wow. And um, Beth and I have been friends since. I'm really excited to do this in-depth policy discussion with her specialty on Afghanistan and everything that's happening because Taylor and I feel way out of our depth yeah, we, talking we, about it. We kept it. punting it because <laughs> like uh, I, I just feel woke, incredibly underqualified and uh, ignorant. Yes, it's, everything it, that's going it's a on. tough topic. So we thought but we would bring in an expert. Yeah, it's been dominating news and so, so we're glad to have you, Beth. Yeah, so lately um, Beth and I have been talking about toddler tantrums but previously she had a very uh, storied career in intelligence which she'll tell us a little bit about and now she is a writer covering everything on topics from veterans to anti-semitism to being a homeschooling mom and the war in Afghanistan so welcome Beth tell us tell us a little bit about your career and what you're doing now well first of all thank you all for having me this is the coolest invite I've gotten in um, my entire career. So Aww. thank you for having me here. I still remember talking about Afghanistan with you, Rachel, when we first uh, met within like five oh. minutes of you walking into that room in Heritage. I wow. feel like we were talking about this. So um, wow. that, I mean, that just like yeah. speaks to how long this has been going too, right? I'm serious. It's been 20 years and yet I've only been involved in it like for the last decade. So uh, mm. I studied a lot of Afghanistan and counterinsurgency uh, and nation building and all the things that were ongoing at that time from about 2008 on at the College of William and Mary, and then ended up getting uh, my first job in intelligence uh, mm. as an well, intel you have to analyst. Tell what your thesis, uh, I'll brag oh, yes. on that. She wrote her thesis in German. Incredible. Yeah, it was uh, quite the undertaking. So I wrote <laughs> about the German occupation of Serbia in World War II and how it was a failed application of counterinsurgency strategy. And I used huh. all of these primary source documents I had from actually um, a Department of Justice internship where we were trying to extradite a Nazi. So interesting wow. how those two aspects of uh, my interests kind of overlapped. But yeah, the Germans... Um, came into Serbia, thought that they would just militarily defeat the Serbian army. And it turns out that it's very hard to kill your way out of an insurgency. And they ended up being thrown out of there within mm. years because the uh, locals did not want them there and neither did Tito and the partisans. So, so it was you, it, they were escalating, like the Serbians would kill a Nazi and then they would kill one. And then it was like, okay, we're gonna kill two Serbians for every Nazi. And then it was, you said it, mm -hmm. how, how high did it go? I, I know that it at least went up to 100. I tried yeah. to read this in German today, but I haven't read German in so long that I'm looking at my thesis thinking I really should have written this in English because <laughs> now that I've lost so much German, I don't really know what happened oh, in there, Serbia so there's, anymore. There's not even a copy in English. It's no, just German. Not a oh, wow. mm -mm. It's like 125 pages in German wow. and it's just grotesque. Nine. So <laughs> yeah, nine is right. I remember that word. Um, so yeah, that led to me being really interested in counterinsurgency and then applying that in the intel world and 
it was interesting mm. being in intelligence. I had developed the idea in my undergraduate career that we were really underestimating the Taliban's capabilities and that that was partially due to ineptitude on our parts and partially mm. due to our eagerness to just get out of Afghanistan. We didn't have the will to stay there. Mm. And uh, my time in intelligence did not make me give up that belief. I still think that our mm. senior leaders are largely inept and don't understand mm. the Taliban's capabilities. They think that they're just a bunch of ragtag huh. people who aren't capable. And I think we've clearly seen in the last month that mm. the Taliban are capable. They yeah, are. They do have a very good control mechanism. And um, it's funny. We always said we were progressing and we were doing so well. And we were doing so well. And, and I've never seen someone do so well and then not be able to pull out a victory or, you know, meet our goals, which we also didn't have. So the whole mess. Wow. What was so, so you had the intelligence experience and then you had some writing as well. Was that yes. at the same time different? different time. I, um, I left the Intel world when I met my husband and I moved up here to Michigan from Charlottesville, Virginia and, uh, started writing. I was going to work on a book about war and Hmm. basically all the things that I just said about ineptitude at the senior levels, but also how that plays in with, uh, the service members experience, you know, what they're going through on the Hmm. ground. Because I think a lot of times we lose sight of that when you're looking at administering a war, you lose sight, especially if you're a civilian, like I was, of the people who were actually fighting that war. And I had a lot of friends who served. I met a lot more when I was working in intelligence because I worked for the army. And then the more I was here, the more I would meet these veterans in very random ways. And they would just open up to me with their stories of service. And Mm. it was incredible. The things that I learned about conflict, just from listening to veterans, I learned more about conflict from listening to veterans because they give you the unvarnished story of what really happened. When you read something on the news, it's one way, but, um, I've just been able to hear some really sad, really incredible, very moving stories. And I urge everyone, I think everyone thinks that you know, veterans don't want to talk about their service. That's what we always hear. But mm-hmm. I think if you go up to a veteran, well, especially if it's, it should probably start with veterans, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's them, probably you know, <laughs> what was your service like, you know, huh. it's mm-hmm. what, what did you do? What, and don't go in with any expectations because every mm-hmm. veteran service is different and the way that it impacted them is different. And the things that they saw and felt they're all different. Every veteran has a unique perspective and I don't think that I I grew up listening to my dad tell stories about being at the Naval Academy and flying F-14. So I love a good veteran story. And I can promise you that if you sit down and listen to a veteran tell stories, you will come away far richer from that experience than uh, than you ought to. You've you've come away with like a plus uh, that um, can't really... It's a good word. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of, it's rare with this war. It's not, you know, there wasn't a draft, right. it, it was a volunteer. Um, so I, I think a lot of people don't know veterans of this war. Absolutely. Or they have an idea because of what we've seen. And I think a lot of what we've seen in the media is talking about PTSD, but the veteran experience is so much beyond PTSD. It's not, um, mm. there are just things that people have seen. I've had people just that's, I think, the big takeaway I have is the things that people had to see when they were there. They're all different. And it might have been, you know, watching a child do something terrible that a child here wouldn't do or hmm. you know, watching adults. It, it's 
it's all varied, but um, sure. yeah, war right. exposes us to things that we don't see here in our culture. Yeah, yeah. I bet. I mean, so maybe shifting to, you know, that Afghanistan and the war there, can you tell us a bit of the history, why we were there, what the mission in Afghanistan was? And <laughs> I mean, that's a huge question, but, you know, right? in like the brief time we have together. Yeah. Can you share a bit about that? Right. So after um, in December of 1979, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan and we started to supply the Mujahideen with training and different kinds of weapons. Um, and mm. they were fighting back against Soviets because we wanted to upset the Soviets and right. destabilize the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union eventually withdrew, a lot of those Mujahideen forces started to war with one another and uh, the Taliban eventually rose out of some of those Mujahideen forces. And mm. after a civil war, a lot of instability, they came to power in 96 and mm. they let Al-Qaeda um, find safe haven in Afghanistan because they have this code of Pashtun Wali, which means that they have to protect their guests and uh. not let them be taken or be harmed by anyone else. So that's uh. how Osama bin Laden found safe haven to plan 9-11. And after that, we began an aerial bombing campaign. And uh, by December 2001, that was over. And by 2002, we were creating these efforts to kind of stabilize Afghanistan because it had never really had a strong central government. It was a failed state. Uh -huh. uh, it didn't have an economy really to speak of. Education was very low. Just all of the indicators that would show you that a country was doing well were not there in Afghanistan. So we started our reconstruction and stabilization efforts at that time, building up the Afghan National Security Forces, um, just kind of propping everything up. And that worked fine until 2006 when the Taliban became resurgent. And at that point, uh, we instituted the surge in 2010, 2011. Yeah. And things started to turn. We managed to get the Taliban on their heels, but all of the, and that required a whole lot of blood and treasure in terms of, um, you know, we had one battalion uh, actually in Sangin, Afghanistan, took the single greatest losses of any battalion just in their single deployment. They lost 25 Marines because it was an incredibly deadly place and they were fighting so hard during the surge to maintain that ground that had not been won back from the Taliban. So that was a really deadly time. And from then on, we just kind of squandered away those losses and kept talking about peace and kept letting the Taliban take more and more of the space. And so by 2020, um, or 2019, actually, I think the Taliban controlled around 70% of Afghanistan. Oh, oh wow. wow. Huh. And that's that. when, oh. yeah, that was when President Trump said that, you know, we've hit them so hard, they're ready to talk peace. And the reality is they have 70% oh. of the country. What? Wow. Well, somewhere wow. around there. Yeah. So it, it became not just... in the headlines. <laughs> no, no, it was um, one of the things and it never was. I mean, it's the same thing that President Obama did when he was in office. He talked about we're doing so great, but you could see if we're doing so great, why are the Taliban controlling more and more districts? Huh. Why is this happening this way? So hmm. I think we postured in a big yeah. way. So was it an unwinnable war? Is that a, I mean, it's a question to ask kind of with in hindsight, but what was your outlook given your the history research you've done, your experience in the writing and the veterans interviews? Like, <laughs> what's your answer to that question? 
I would have to cobble together a couple points to answer that question. The first, I talked recently with a friend who's a Marine veteran about this because we talk about this all the time. Hmm. And he said, well, you know, if you want to say that you won the war, like, what does it mean to win? We never really talked about what does it mean to win in Afghanistan? We went in to fight Al Qaeda. Well, when we went in, in 2001, there were 400, roughly 400 uh, Al Qaeda fighters. I just read in a report this weekend. Now there are between the estimates are from 250 to 600 and there are more pouring in now because they know that, oh, the Taliban are back in power. So obviously if that was our goal, we did not meet that goal. And I, as I said before, I don't think you can kill your way out of an insurgency. And I think we wanted to stabilize this country, but, um, if you wanted to do that, it was going to require a lot. Actually, I'd love if all the listeners would Google counterinsurgency spaghetti. I know it sounds crazy, but the first thing that comes up is this absolutely insane graphic that went around the Intel community and, and all of the Afghanistan watchers back when I was in Intel. And it's all of the different factors that are involved in Afghanistan that need to work together in order to have success. So we're talking things like, um, Afghan national security forces, the government of Afghanistan, um, the efforts to combat corruption and subjugation Uh of women, all these different things. And they've all got to play nicely together if you want to have success and you have to, you know, minimize the power of the Taliban. We kept trying to um, make peace with the Taliban when the Taliban is doing well. That's not when you try to make peace. That's, (laughs) yeah, that's not what's going to happen. And it never did with the Taliban. And so the other, if we wanted to defeat the Taliban, we needed to do things differently in that regard too. There's a saying um, in Afghanistan that you have the watches, we have the time. And the Taliban always knew they had time on their side. Yep. Yeah. We were not going to stay forever. We started to give them timelines and I think 2013, 2014. And that's when yeah. it was like, well, there you go. You just gave it to them because you said huh. we're going to be gone and they don't care. They're recruiting little boys in madrasas. They're planning for the future. And they have this willpower that I don't think Mm. was really, um, they're just motivated by this ideology that I do not share. Um, but I think that that just wasn't on the other side as much. Yeah. Mm. Counterinsurgency spaghetti. We'll put that in the show notes. Check it out. Uh Check it out. It's crazy. Okay. Now you talked a little bit about this, that, you know, in 2019, Trump said we were winning, um, and started negotiating a peace. And that was known as the Doha agreement. Will you tell us a little bit about what his agreement for peace was and what it entailed? Right. So the Taliban had had an office in Doha Qatar since 2013, I believe. And we'd been working to try to iron out some kind of peace agreement and they just kept stalling and things kept being terrible. But in 2020, Mm. uh, Trump pursued that again. Um, My big qualm with this is that he left out the Afghan government. And we spent how many years trying Uh, to prop up this government and yeah, they were not involved in the deals. They would be brought in at a later date to, to discuss with the Taliban what they would do. But to me, that's you're abandoning your ally. You're showing they're not legitimate. We are. You need to talk with us. They they don't matter. Hmm. And I think we see what happens with that when you know, the Afghan government is now gone. The president's in exile from the last thing I heard. I don't know if that's different now, but um, 
you're just delegitimizing all that work. So the agreement that did result though, between us and the Taliban is that we would reduce our troops. They would stop attacking Americans, although they did not stop attacking Afghan mm. forces and civilians. Oh, wow. And they would not let any attacks on the U.S. be conducted from Afghan soil. Mm. Um, they also, like I said, they had to talk with the Afghan government. And they did that up until the point that they took Kabul, at which point they didn't need to talk with the Afghan government anymore because there was no Afghan government anymore. Wow. Um, and then there would be a prisoner swap at some point between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Mm. Uh, I think the Taliban just went into all the jails and opened the doors. So that was their prisoner swap. Wow. wow. And we established that withdrawal timeline too. But obviously when President Biden took over, he came up with a different withdrawal timeline. Yeah. Well, that's the the next question we have is, yeah, what, what, what did Biden do like bridging the administrations? Cause it was for the last few years, it has been this consistency of let's end endless wars. Let's withdraw from Afghanistan. You know, Trump and Biden seem to be on the same page there. But then what did Biden? So if that Doha agreement was there with Trump, like what did Biden do with drawdown and kind of ramifications? Well, I think Biden tried to pass the buck to everyone, even though he says the buck stopped with him. I think, you know, he tried (laughs) to blame Trump. Um, Really, you know, his first deadline that we were going to pull out by was September 11th. And when he realized that that was really an error, because that's, you know, why would you choose that date of all days uh, and changes it arbitrarily to August 31st? Like he had plenty of leeway to make the date whenever he wanted. He also knew things like the fact that a lot of the people who were stuck there at the Abbey Gate at Hamig Karzai International Airport trying to get out of Afghanistan, Mm. clogging up that huge area were our special immigrant visa applicants. Those were the interpreters who worked with us, who risked their lives because the Taliban would then target them or their families if they knew that they worked with us. Um, Mm. And we didn't bring them here. We failed those people. They, you know, the, the, there was a backlog of years. Um, A thousand interpreters between Afghanistan and Iraq were killed. That's an estimate of how many were killed um, while awaiting special immigrant visa, not to mention the ones who are stuck there now, um, which of which I know one or who died in the Hamid Karzai International Mm. Airport bombing on August 26th, of which I know one and his wife and now their two year old and three year old sons are orphaned. Mm. Um, And they that particular gentleman, his um, Marine. Mm friends have been trying to get him here since 2015. So wow. this is not a new thing. So he abandoned all oh those people, didn't give them any time. Um, this is a the other question, problem. Why didn't they start? <laughs> was it just like gross mismanagement? Why did this not happen earlier? I think at some level, at least with the SIV applicants, yes, gross mismanagement. People have been trying to raise yeah. the alarm on that for years. Um, I actually worked with two veterans in May, I think is when I started writing or yeah, May about getting their interpreters here because they thought their time was being, they wouldn't have any more time in May. Hmm. So, and that was all over the news at that time. Those were just, you know, two of uh, so many stories of desperate veterans trying to get their interpreters here. Um, Because for all the stories I've heard about, you know, terrible Afghan interpreters or Afghan national security forces high on drugs and not doing their work, these people had just the most amazing stories about people who risked their lives for them Mm. and who became like their brothers. So we really messed up there, I think. And, you know, we did things like we left Bagram Airfield in the dead of night 
without warning the Afghans at all. They showed up the next day and thought, well, where are the Americans? We didn't even tell them our largest base, the place where we actually could have had a chance to, I think, exfiltrate our people safely. Right. I just think literally every day for the last month, um, I just watched the news and thought, could you make worse decisions? I don't think it could have been handled more poorly. So, I mean, what is... Like the, the, the gross incompetence is one, and we have one final question, but like the gross incompetence is like one answer. Is there like, these are smart people supposedly, but like they're, they're, they're not brand new, you know, uh, like uh, I don't know, Starbucks baristas who are plopped into like making foreign policy decisions. Like they had careers, like what is maybe like the steel man argument for the decisions they made? You know, you could answer that question. Gosh, that's the hard thing. And so here's where I think this might have happened. I think that Biden made the final decision. I've I've seen that in some places. And I think he made it based on this is from a Reuters article, actually, where it cited White House officials saying that Biden's withdrawal plans were based on polling that fallout at home would be limited if he pursued the drawdown Mm. plan that he had. And I think this is the one point that gives me some modicum of hope and that's the fact that americans absolutely cared what we saw during that month as things were just falling apart is americans really did care about afghanistan you can't be in a place for 20 years and not be hearing about the plight of women there or what's happened to our forces there all the people who become gold star families and lost a loved one there those are things that touch americans deeply and so that is I think that was it. It was a callous calculation of, oh, COVID is going to take over the news cycle again. We don't need to worry about Afghanistan. Wow. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, evidence so far. Right. Well, you've talked about this a little bit, Beth, and I know your writing and your heart has been in your relationships with all of these veterans. How do you think, how are your friends um, taking this and how can we help our other veteran friends in this tough time? I think that, uh, the veteran community has taken this very, um, much to heart because as I said, you know, they have allies that they feel they've left behind. It's, um, Megan mobs, who is a West point graduate and she is, um, doing a fellowship, I think with the independent women's forum, she talked about, Mm how there had been an increase in calls to the veterans crisis hotline as a result of all the Afghanistan fallout. And she said, it's because of moral injury. All of these veterans feel very deeply that we don't leave anyone behind. And so the way that this played out, leaving so many Americans behind, leaving so many of our allies behind, it really was harmful uh, for veterans. And then you have, you know, just the personal things that happened to people. There was an excellent article by James Laporta about a memory he has of watching a little Afghan boy at five years old stomping on a pile of dirt. And he's wondering why is it different than the other piles of dirt? And James Laporta knows exactly why it is. And it's because there's a VOIED buried under that pile of dirt. And this little boy jumps and jumps and he's so malnourished. He's not heavy enough to set it off. And then Mm. eventually he does. James Laporta watches him explode before his eyes. And in the beginning, he's talking about watching his son jump around his house. It's very moving. I I would recommend everyone read it, but I wanted to read a part from it here because I think he he just tells exactly how so much of the community seems to be feeling. Mm -hmm. 
The monster took my friends in gun battles or later via their own hands. I could blame it for my anger and depression, my sleepless nights and unhealthy eating habits and weight gain, my failed marriage, the pills from the VA, the ringing in my ear and shortness of breath in my lungs. How long until cancer develops from toxic burn pits, I wonder. Afghanistan is my sucking chest wound and always will be because despite what we've seen these recent weeks, wars do not end with a withdrawal or retreat or retrograde or the signing of a peace treaty. Instead, they ebb and flow within the memories of those who were there and the ones who receive an unfortunate knock on the door one day from people in uniforms. On those battlegrounds, there is a permanent shattering. It's the real forever war. And then he talks about you know, how many people around him actually understand that war. And that's another thing that Megan Mobs, who I was talking about earlier, says, you know, there's this divide between civilians and the military. But when we look at it, I mean, 7,070 people were killed in this war on terror. Well, in, yeah, the whole war on terror, 53,300 more than that were wounded. Mm -hmm. Um, 30,177 GWAT veterans have committed suicide. And then we have all of that toxic exposure that James Laporta talks about where hundreds of thousands were exposed mm. to burn pits where we eliminated all of our waste in Afghanistan because we didn't have, you know, dumpsters and things like that. They would, oh. that's where human excrement, uh, batteries, paint, anything that needed to get thrown away got burned. And many people are developing these rare and aggressive cancers young wow. people and they're thinking it's burn pit exposure. So there's just all these things going on in the community. There's the disconnect of civilians and military don't speak right. the same language. And there is, I think, a way to fix that and to reach out. And Megan Mobs talked about it in that um, section session that she did where she talked about reparative action. She was telling the veteran community, hey, perform reparative action. You want to feel better? Go out and donate to these groups, go work with these groups, help Afghans. It'll make you feel better. This will be a way to, you know, feel like you're doing something again and it'll restore that connection. And I think that's what civilians need to be doing right now. Reparative action with veterans, mm -hmm. listen to the veterans in your life, make sure that you know, that they know that, um, mm -hmm. you're very interested in how they're doing and listening to their stories and helping them process what happened at war, because we need to invest in our veterans and understand this conflict outside of the headlines. And that way, I think uh, we can get a real feel for the hell that war actually is. Mm. Mm. Thanks so much Beth, for sharing. Yeah, guys. thank you for giving us kind of a window into this and um, the many hours you've spent talking to veterans and um, hopefully other people learned as much as we did today. Yeah, um, yeah. Gosh, it feels really heavy to switch to stinkers and thinkers from that. Um, Not the first time, though, but we can. We'll transition because <laughs> um, we are excited to get someone else's views on stinkers and thinkers. So stinkers and thinkers are what media we consume that we thought was really great and really a stinker. So I can start maybe. Yeah, we'll have Taylor okay. start. All right. Okay, Taylor, what is your stinker my stinker is the met gala <laughs> i barely know what it is i think they're raising money for some sort of art or something right you're shaking your head I don't oh know. i don't know what it is <laughs> i have no idea either but it was like this like big brouhaha on social media everyone who like loved the whatever happened was talking about it. everyone who hated whatever happened was talking about it if you actually don't care about elites there seem to be a lot of caring for this thing that doesn't matter. 
So like, if you if you don't care, then just don't even talk about it. Like, it doesn't have to happen. And it was just so so maybe it's like as much the thing, but like the the we the discussion the buzz is, about yeah, it. Yeah, like just let it go. And I think my thinker was Cruella. We watched Cruella, that Disney movie. I guess I had a ton of 101 Dalmatians as a child because I was like, ooh, that's a little reference to the thing there. And I was asking Rachel, like, isn't that the guy who did the... Di-? She's, she's like, I, don't I did not remember it. I don't remember at all. And I wanted to like Google these things, but I felt a little uncomfortable. Anyway, it was a, it was a really well done film and good character, great acting. Uh, it was really well costumes. done. Costumes, yeah. yeah. Good story. Really good, great it. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent have you seen soundtrack. it, Beth? I haven't yet. We have Disney uh, Plus, but I have not watched it yet. I imagine it's probably not for like four-year-olds. So no, we probably no, no. will not. Yeah. <laughs> probably not. But yeah, the soundtrack. It's an adult movie. Soundtrack was awesome. Oh, nice. Anyway, those yeah. are mine. Beth, what was your stinker this week? Um, my stinker lately has been the latest season of Walking Dead to show up on Netflix because what? I just can't. Yeah, a new no, one? I can't. It, well, it showed up a couple weeks ago and I keep trying to watch it. And it's just so many people have died and I don't know who's who anymore. I'm just so confused. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've never seen a show that just kills off more characters and you're just it makes sense this is you know apocalyptic everything True. and everyone's a zombie yeah. but i just i think i've lost control of what's going on in the interim between when they released the last one and i'm just like i can't do it i'm sorry I, i'm in violent agreement with you because i gave up on it like season three or something or four it was just turned into a soap opera with yeah. like zombies occasionally too and it's but it was good in the beginning, I feel like. I tried to rewatch yeah. from the beginning, though, and I'm like, no, I can't. This is not yeah. a Mad Men that I can rewatch over and over and over again. This is like, <laughs> I think I'm done rewatching. I don't know. <laughs> they should have killed it a long time ago. Right. <laughs> well, they already did. Everybody's like, that's the thing. But so many, they should have killed it a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> like a zombie. It just killing. Oh, you did that on purpose? Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. man. <laughs> All right, Beth, what's your thinker? <laughs> All right, well, this one I feel like is, it's going to sound like a cop-out, but I've had I've reread this book now because I've written a couple of reviews on it and did a webinar on it this week, but it's called um, Every Deep Drawn Breath, A Critical Care Doctor on Healing, Recovery, and Transforming Medicine in the ICU, and it's by Wes Ely, Whoa. and it's just a beautiful book about, uh, well, everything, uh, literature, and the big thing is Wes's journey to um, find the humanity in his sedated critical care patients because he feels that he did a lot of harm to them in the past by doing what was prescribed in the ICU. And now he's created this new protocol that gets people up and moving, gets them, um, basically it eliminates this condition called post-intensive care syndrome, PICS, which is devastating. And I didn't know anything Mm. about it. And now that I do, I'm even more intent on not catching COVID because wow. Picks is serious stuff, but he talked in our webinar about discernment. And so now I'm just wow. thinking about it even more and thinking about my own life and my own redemptive journey and, and wow. all these things. It is the most incredible amalgamation of things that I think I've ever put What's in What's the my title head. of the book? Every Deep Drawn Breath Every is deep very, breath. Okay. very wow. much worth huh. a read. That's a good, good one. Anecdotes about New Orleans. It's, it's wow. Good. Sounds incredible. It is. As an ICU veteran myself, yeah, <laughs> right? I, I thought about you when I was reading, and I wondered because you weren't really sedated for any period, right? You were just the surgery. Does that kind of okay? Sedated? No, no. This is like people who are sedated in the ICU for like weeks at a time, oh, or like oh. you know on ventilators for oh, weeks because wow. that all 
Okay. creates delirium. And the longer you are, uh, the longer that delirium is going on in you, the more likely you are to have post-intensive care syndrome. So wow. I don't know. I mean, okay. there you might, I don't know. You should definitely read it. I'd be interested yeah. to see what your thought on it is on it because you were there. It, huh. yeah. It's wow. different than the people he talks about, but yeah, you should definitely, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll link your yes. webinar in the, the cool beam. Rachel, my stinker. I actually quite enjoyed this, but it's a stinker. Well, I'll explain it. Okay. It is the, um, I think it was on Amazon. Lula rich. Was that on Amazon? It was. Okay. So this was the competition, a mini series about, uh, MLM multi-level marketing right. company called Lula row, which made like really Beth is nodding along. Oh yes. She yeah. knows about it. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I've heard the, about them. The dudes don't get as much marketing for it. It's yeah. It's like really colorful, weird printed leggings. Right. And it had its moment probably like five years ago or something. And it really exposed kind of the pyramid scheme, uh, what it does to people. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the the people who started it just kind of greed took over after a while. And it was just really fascinating to me. And it revealed to me this untapped market of moms who want to contribute, who want to make money for their households, who want to use their brains, but they also want to be with their families. And so they kind of get pulled in by these pyramid schemes with the promise that they can have the flexibility to be with their family, but also do a little something on the side. And I think it's this whole rich untapped market of the labor force is moms who want to have flexibility. So like that business practice is the stinker, the business practice, but <laughs> I would say the Amazon series is quite good. Yeah. Um, oh. and then thinker, my thinker. So Taylor's parents told us to watch the oh, Durrells yeah. in Corfu. Thanks parents. <laughs> yeah. It sounds funny. You have to like see it the, <laughs> to me. Durrells <laughs> in Corfu. Beth is skeptical. I'm writing it down. (laughs) um, You really don't have to convince me ever to watch a masterpiece classic. That's true. (laughs) I love historical nonfiction. Anyone with a hat, Rich will watch. (laughs) (laughs) A hat and a gown. Boom. I'm down too. If you would have told me that from the beginning, I would have said, oh, of course. So yeah, it didn't take much, um, but it is really, Taylor actually likes it too. I do, even though they're hats. <laughs> it's very you clever. to protect your face from the sun. Yeah. <laughs> they are in Greece. It's really clever. Each yeah. character is wonderful. It's funny. It's beautiful. It's heartwarming. Mm-hmm. And it, they say it just keeps getting better. We're just in season one. I think there's four seasons. Wow. So yeah. Stinkers and thinkers. Uh, I already so know much. what my next plan is for tonight. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for your time, Beth, and uh, yes. just telling us your knowledge about Afghanistan and your experiences with people who've been there. It was super, super helpful. Yes. Well, it was so nice to be here. Thank you, guys. Our first guest, and I think you knocked it out of the park. I think so. <laughs> Set a high oh. bar. Oh, you are very kind. Thank you, and... I'll come back any time if I can have a thinker and a stinker. So thank you, Beth. Thanks everyone for listening.